If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. With Valentine's Day coming up, you might be thinking about love's past, present and even future. But why we fall in and out of love remains a mystery to many of us. Indeed, we've long been obsessed with the idea of a love potion. Here's Ron from the Harry Potter series after he has ill-advisedly eaten some slightly dodgy chocolates. Do you think she knows I exist? I bloody well hope so. She's been snogging you for three months. Snogging? Who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Amilda, of course. Amilda Vane. Okay, very funny. What's that for? It's no joke. I'm in love with her. All right, fine, you're in love with her. Have you ever actually met her? No. Can you introduce me? But could there really be some scientific way to control our feelings, and would we want to? This week, Oxford neuroscientist Anders Sandberg makes the case for chemically enhancing our love lives. Thank you very much. So, as you can hear from my accent, I'm originally Swedish. And according to Swedish folklore, if you really want to get together with somebody, you should take an apple, put it into your armpit for a day, carry it around, and then give it to your loved one to eat. Love will guaranteed follow. Or at least you know that uh, your beloved maybe haven't got a good sense of smell. Uh, and folklore is full of stories about how we can enhance or get love in various ways. In one piece of folklore from northern Pakistan, the Pushtun there believe that, well, if you wash a dead leather worker, uh, that water is really powerful stuff that can fo- make anybody fall in love with anybody and they will be all very, very sexually aroused. And this is, of course, a very human thing. We really care about love. We care about getting more of it or getting better love or trying to do it. And when you think about this folklore, although it's somewhat magical, there is some aspect of chemistry, there is some substance, there is something you can give to somebody that will change how they feel or how you feel. There is also quite a lot of folklore on how to improve your marriage by various rituals and tricks or what you're supposed to eat. And we, of course, got all these lovely ideas about what a really perfect uh, lover's diner should be about, eating oysters. And some of them are, of course, believed just by being symbolic. But others are believed to have some kind of chemical effect on our minds that would then make us interested in each other or interested in running off to the bedroom. Now, the interesting part to me as a part-time neuroscientist, part-time ethicist is 
well, what if this actually worked? And science is actually moving in a direction that makes it plausible that we can figure out some of the chemistry of love and desire, which would mean that we can start messing with it, which always raises the wonderful question, should we? How much? When? Where? How? So going back to what do we actually know about why we love each other? And that is actually a quite interesting question because many organisms around on Earth obviously don't seem to have love at all. We might, as humans, want to imagine that the trees are loving each other, but uh, to be honest, when you watch the behavior of trees, they don't seem to have that much of a relationship. <laughs> on the other hand, we can certainly look at apes and see that, yeah, they have families. They actually seem to be very similar to us in many respects. And we can see grieving elephants and realize that those elephants have some form of social bond that's very emotional, and they do realize enough that they have just lost somebody who's never going to come back. That is quite impressive. Meanwhile, the mating habits of some insects are downright disturbing, but they're very keen on mating. And from a pure biology standpoint, of course, why do we even have sex? And the basic answer that is probably the most likely is that it's a good way of mixing up genes. And that's probably where sex comes from. Now, that creates an incentive to find another organism that is compatible with you and uh, make offspring. You don't need any emotions for that. This is just a matter of mixing the right DNA. But of course, it's more complicated because you want the best DNA. So uh, ideally, organisms that find good partners will tend to have offspring that do better. And the end result is, of course, all this beautiful craziness we see in nature, like the peacock's tail. The males demonstrate that they're really, really impressive. They're really healthy because they can maintain this giant tail despite there being foxes around. Up to a point, of course, because eventually the tail gets so big that the foxes easily grab the peacocks. But the next problem is taking care of your offspring. And this is slightly tricky when you become a mammal. It's one thing if you're a fish and just release a lot of fry into the ocean, and, uh, or if you're an insect and just put uh, a lot of eggs on some leaf somewhere and forget about them. But we mammals, we invest quite a lot in our offspring. We need to care for them. And that requires the mother to actually remember who the offspring are. So in mammals, we start seeing a lot of the maternal care system. For our purposes, when talking about love, it's of course the maternal system in mammals that really matters. Because that has probably then been accepted into romantic love. Acceptation is when evolution reuses something that already exists in a useful way. So we have this system of maternal love that you need to care and be tender towards the young. And in us humans, since we have pretty incompetent infants, I mean, a horsefowl can walk an hour after being born. It takes years for humans. Our infants need to be tender for many, many years, otherwise they won't survive, which means that it's not just enough to have a mother around, you better have a father around too, which means that, again, paternal bonding to the child is important. And you want to, of course, the father and mother to actually stay around each other to help each other. So it seems like evolution has taken brain systems that were originally intended to just create a strong bond to the offspring and made us bond to each other. So that is kind of an evolutionary story about why we might have ended up with romantic love. It seems to be a human universal. We live in a fairly romantic, love-obsessed culture. We think that this is the highest, best possible goal. But in other cultures, in other eras, there have been this view that actually 
love is a really annoying thing because it gets in the way of proper marriage, which is all about politics and land and economics. Just think about Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. It's really a disaster story about how an intense political situation is made really much worse by these people just falling into love. The idea that love is something good, we, we all feel it's a good emotion, but socially it might be disruptive. And indeed, historically, many people have suggested that, yeah, it's important to keep lust and love under control because uh, they get in the way of being a good citizen. So as we move into the future, now science is also giving us better tools to actually understand what's going on in our brains when we fall in love. And uh, we have been helped here immensely by another interesting animal, the prairie vole and the montane vole. So the prairie vole, they are monogamous. It might be hard to say whether they fall in love, because by human standards, that's probably not the right word. But obviously, when two prairie voles meet, they stick together, and they stay together for a very long time. The closely related montane voles, they sleep around. Now, they're very similar species. They evolved uh, recently from uh, the basic ancestor species. And you can start comparing what's going on in the brain. And the cool part is we actually know pretty well what brain systems are responsible. It has to do with the hormones oxytocin and vasopressin. Oxytocin is most well known perhaps uh, for in increasing lactation. But it is also sometimes called in the press the cuddle hormone. If you spray intranasally, it diffuses into the brain. And in economic games, you're more willing to give money to strangers and trust people. You become more interested in looking at facial expressions and interpret uh, what they feel. It also has some interesting dark sides. This only goes for strangers that are somewhat like you, uh, not those guys. So it might make you a bit more parochial. But everybody who's inside your in-group kind of gets part of the big group hug. And it seems that uh, if you infuse this uh, into the brain of uh, montane voles, you can actually make them monogamous. You can do genetic modifications of the receptors and make the monogamous uh, voles sleep around. It even turns out that in humans, there is a variation in the vasopressin receptor gene that in men seems to increase the probability of having a mistress. Of course, this is just the foundation because then we humans have built a lot of other stuff on top of it. We have big brains and we think about what we're doing. When we feel, it's also partially a cognitive emotion. We actually are not just uh, feeling very strongly about a loved one. We're thinking about who they are. We're making up stories about why we're falling in love or why we're definitely not falling in love with that uh, character, yet can't stay away from it. And then we complicate things endlessly, like we humans do. But deep down, you have this basic neurochemistry. And it would be very surprising if that didn't affect us. This is nothing different from that electricity is underlying everything the computer is doing. But whether that is solving a mathematical problem or what, watching Netflix, well, that depends on the pattern. If you change the pattern of electricity in a computer, you can get a different behavior. And if we change the pattern of the hormones in the brain, we might get different behavior. So the most well-known and simple ones are, of course, the ones that affect the lust systems. So Fisher and others have suggested that you can split love into roughly three subsystems. So one is the lust system, mate with somebody you can mate with. Then you have the attraction system, find the right one. Uh, select who to be your partner. Lust is not necessarily very selective. And then you have, of course, the attachment or bonding system, stay together with uh, the right one. And these ones seem to run on slightly different uh, systems. So testosterone and estrogen can stimulate uh, libido and make you want to mate. 
but love is not necessarily involved. To some of us, it's really important that we want intimacy. We want to actually have somebody we love in bed. Others say, no, 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 I just want to have fun exercise. Uh, we don't know that much actually about the attraction system, how we select the right one. Uh, typically because it's hard to study humans who are just falling into love with each other. It's not like you can kind of look around, grab them and put them in a brain scanner. <laughs> it's hard. They resist, apparently. Uh, so what you want to do is uh, look at patterns. So people have been suggesting that we actually are attracted to people by smell partially. In many animals, pheromones play a big role. It's very debated whether we humans even have proper pheromones. These uh, substances that actually tell you that somebody is a good partner. But we have a sense of smell and we sort of react to the smell of each other in complicated, very human ways. Which is why we have a perfume industry and why first impressions last and so on. We have a, quite a lot of that going on. But generally, we still don't know exactly how this works. But once you've fallen in love, the effect is a bit like taking amphetamine. You get a rush of dopamine, you get uh, changes in the serotonin system. People really show behavior that's not too dissimilar from OCD. You become a bit obsessive about your loved one. Uh, you can't avoid thinking about them. Mm, you really need to do things for them. The problem here might, of course, be that this is not very sustainable for living a good life. This is partially why you know, the ancient Romans were so worried about people falling in love. That's bad for society. And then you move on into the pair bonding phase, which seems to be sustained by voxytocin and vasopressin systems. And this can, of course, last for a long time. And we humans, we tend to say, till death do us part when we get married, um, or in my case, when I got married, uh, the priest looked at my cryonics medallion, which tells to freeze me if I'm dead and trying to revive me in the far future. As a futurist, I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is. So in my case, my wow ends till death do us part temporarily. <laughs> yeah. And my husband, who happens to be a lawyer, pointed out actually legally that still, if you die, it still annuls the marriage. But I'm willing to give you a chance if you come back. Yeah, that's what I love about him. <laughs> now, but the problem is, of course, as we live longer and longer, we might actually be stretching things for the oxytocin system because evolution doesn't care about what happens to us after we have had our children and made sure they get a great start in life, which is partially why we believe we age. Beyond reproductive age, there is no evolutionary pressure for making us healthy. Any disease that kills us uh, before uh, we can have children Evolution is going to select strongly against that. We're going to have an immune system that's good at handling that. But at old age, nah, evolution doesn't care too much about us. And the same thing might actually be about our pair bonding. So as a hunter-gatherer, you're living a very dangerous life. On the ancestral African savanna, probably most relationships ended with one of the partners dying after perhaps seven or ten years. That is sad. But, uh, of course, it's enough to actually have your kids grown enough that they can survive. So it's good enough for biological purposes. Uh, it's very tragic from a human perspective. So we have been working very hard and, uh, to actually make ourselves live longer and be safer and get our loved ones to actually survive well. So now we can live much longer than those seven or ten years, which means that in some of us, the oxytocin system might actually be fading off. It might even be, from an evolutionary standpoint, a good idea to have different partners to mix the genes a little bit more, which might make sense if you care only about genes. But we tend to care about each other. 
this is what's happening when you have a big forebrain and start thinking carefully about what is love for, what I want out of a relationship. We're adding on a lot of stuff that evolution doesn't care at all about. Well, I don't think uh, we should obey evolution because evolution is a pretty inhumane activity. It led to us, but now I think we can do better. So that's why we want to live longer and we want to love longer. So that's why we have a marriage therapy. In many cases, of course, this process of maintaining a long-term relationship, whether that is actually a formal marriage or an actual relationship or some complicated polyamorous constellation that requires a logistic system to figure out who's with whom, when, and so on. We all create these tools because we get something very good out of it. We get something very meaningful, and we need to work on maintaining it because we need to learn each other's quirks, learn to ignore some of the more annoying ones, and marriage therapy and marriage counseling, of course, is about solving these problems, but it might be perhaps supplemented by fixing the oxytocin system, adding extra oxytocin. Probably not just by sniffing oxytocin. Some people have been trying that, but it only lasts about 30 minutes. So that, you can't just go and run snorting it all the time. That's not going to be a basis for a sound relationship. <laughs> Uh, others have experimented with MDMA, the uh, compound in ecstasy, uh, which is an intactogen. It makes people want to cuddle. It uh, really releases a lot of oxytocin. And it doesn't make people more em empathic, but people pay more attention to each other's faces, so they have a better chance of actually perhaps getting a signal. But these are very early days. It seems likely that we will get tools that allow us to mess with this. That, of course, leads to the very fun should be question. So, when people talk about enhancing love, we might imagine enhancing love by the classical love potion. You drink it and fall in love with the next person you see. And from a philosophical standpoint, this seems very problematic. If I'm in love with somebody just because of something I drank, that's not very authentic. We typically want to be in love with somebody because of who they are. A good romantic love is all about caring about them. Not really in a, about the benefits I get from being in a relationship. So generally, it seems problematic with the classic love potion. It's a good thing they don't exist, and it, we don't know how to make them. Now, last on the other hand, well, boosting libidos. I'm generally a hedonist. I think that sounds great. As long as everybody involved are in a, happy with that, perfect. It might, however, be also that sometimes you want to lower your libido. In fact, in many relationships, one of the biggest causes of the friction is, of course, that, uh, that one part wants to go to bed a lot and the other just got a headache and has a very interesting book to read. Now, uh, the first part might say, yeah, you should take these testosterone patches and boost your libido a little bit. The other part might say, yeah, actually, why don't you take a little bit of this testosterone-lowering uh, medication so we can both read something interesting? And from a philosophical standpoint, it's not clear that which way you should go. If you're a pure hedonist, you might say, yeah, yeah, you should be getting the maximum pleasure. But it's not entirely certain that sex is better than a really good book. <laughs> okay, I'm admitting that I'm an academic nerd. <laughs> um, so in this case, the, the couple would need to actually talk about it and kind of what's important to you. Or maybe on even weeks we go for the bedroom and on the odd weeks we go to the library. <laughs> you can work it out. But it's obvious that it's no longer a question about enhancing one person. 
in much of my work on neuroethics, it's been about cognitive enhancement. And there, it's usually an individual and society in some vague sense. And the question is, if I take a cognition-boosting drug, is that a moral thing to do? And it's all about one individual versus society. Here, you have two individuals, and maybe the rest of society. And they need to also agree on what they do to each other. Most small trouble, of course, just the tip of an iceberg. I might be annoyed at the dishes, but there are some deeper reasons. But sometimes it's the boring neurochemistry. And then we might say, okay, here, take this oxytocin-enhancing pill, sit in this room together and talk about these things on this list for a half an hour every day. That might be a way of actually strengthening the pair bonding. Now, from a philosophical standpoint, this seems to be pretty okay. Because you already have an authentic love. You have already fallen in love and, uh, and uh, learned about each other. You fit in some sense, for some reason. And now you can make the fit last better. And this seems to be useful. Now, an economist friend said, yeah, but sometimes you want a better liquidity in the love market. Yeah, yeah here is an economist. Uh, it's not always clear that you want relationships to last. It might sometimes be a good thing to actually have a clean breakup. So if we could enhance this uh, pair bond, maybe we might also disenhance it deliberately. And that seems relatively unlikely that anybody would want it in their own relationship normally. But there are perilous loves where it might actually be that, yeah, you can understand that you don't want to be in it. Uh, the most clear case is abusive relationships. But uh, in many of these stories, you find that uh, the abused part realizes that, okay, I love him, but he beats me. And I wish I didn't love him, but I do. So I stay in here, even though I know this is terribly bad. It makes it very tough. Now, in the, that case, you might say, well, if you could remove this oxytocin bond, then you would be able to move freely and actually allow your higher order desires to control it. Another more standard thing is, of course, controlling sex drive. Many people are concerned about their sexual urges, especially if they come from a very religious background and think that they're very wrong. And they might say, yeah, I want to control this in order to live a life that's authentic according to my religious and spiritual values. Again, we might argue that maybe you need to think about what those values are if you really have a trouble with a healthy sex life. But in some cases, we might say, yeah, that's actually not a healthy situation. You're actually suffering a lot. And we certainly have a situation with people who have very dark sexual urges where we might say, yes, it's a good thing to have a chemical castration for those. They might intellectually agree that it's a bad thing to want to rape or commit pedophilia. So it might be a good thing for them if they could control that. It might be even better, of course, if they could get a way of changing what they want, assuming they want that. So it's all about, could you actually allow your higher order values to control lower order values? So we have higher order values about love and what it's for. In many cases, they're deeply spiritual. They're based on a cultural understanding of what life should be about. A realization that we're not just individuals, but we're also part of a bigger meshwork. And we need to have at least one or two very, very strong bonds in our life to actually live a good life. There are various philosophical concepts of what actually makes well-being. And just happiness itself might not be enough. You might want something meaningful. And typically, that involves having a family, whether that involves having children or just having somebody who's very close. There are various other aspects of love that are important, like learning how to care for somebody for their own sake. I think it's very hard to have a society working if everybody just purely cares for themselves. So what I think we're going to see is that these 
scientific understandings of the neurochemistry of love is going to gradually not just seep into our way of talking about it. It's a little bit too facile and easy to say, oh yes, I'm going to take a bit of chocolate to increase my serotonin level and then I'm going to cuddle with my husband uh, to bring up my oxytocin level and increase his oxytocin levels. That's kind of a folk neuroreductionism that's pretty stupid. Because what I'm actually doing is I'm taking chocolate because it tastes good and it makes me feel good. And I ideally want to cuddle my husband because it makes us feel good together. It's very easy to fall into this trap. It's a bit like genetic determinism. When once we got a lot of gene tests, it's very easy to talk about there is a gene for this and that. And that's, of course, missing the point. That's a bit like saying that the brick in this wall is the wall. No, it's part of a bigger structure. But the interesting thing is, as these structures become more transparent and we can start manipulating, that means our love is becoming even more of a cultural construction. We know that romantic love and how we think about it is very much a, um, a cultural construction. We have a foundation in biology, but on top of that, we have our you know, big cultural constructions, everything from the Bible to Disney shaping our idea about love. And as we can start reshaping our neurochemistry, that means that we might, our cultural understanding is also going to start feeding back into how we actually feel. That's going to lead to some rather interesting debate about what the appropriate interventions are. What are the safeguards so we don't uh, force vulnerable people to change their emotions in ways that are societally approved? But it might also make us much happier and stay happy. Till death do us part. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Should we be taking pills for love? Let us know by tweeting at iai underscore tv with the hashtag philosophy for our times.